Peace be with you. Thank you. I occasionally will say this, just thank you for everything you guys do, uh, for your serving and children, with the children. Thank you for giving financially. Thank you for um, leading and doing things in groups and working in the mercy ministry and cleaning our building. Those of you who do that, thank you, thank you, thank you. We, uh, it, it matters so much more than you might know. Um, I uh, am excited about the series. I'm excited what we're looking at in terms of love. Um, I hope that this, that the next six weeks will resonate with you, and I encourage you to be at our prayer uh, mornings on Wednesday and explore that and maybe come with something to write with, because I'll, I'll be giving prayer homework. Um, so anyway, I, um, I asked, I've asked this before in here, I know, in, this, in our services, and I, I ask it sometimes one-on-one -on -one with people, and I, it's just one of my favorite questions, and I, pardon it if it seems cliche to you, but... You know, I went like this week, we'll just set on this week, I'd like for you to think for a moment. Um, when did you notice, or when you think back on this, just this past week, when, when did you feel loved this week? And what were you doing? Some of you, some of you, some of you your face is like, well, I wasn't. And um, you have you, even in a small way, you know, like for me, like don't overthink it. I mean, like for me, uh, it, it, honestly, like when I like when I come in from the days of work, and like I walk in, and sometimes my both my little kids will run and greet me, you know, like grabbing my leg, Daddy, you're the best, we love you, and it just there's 30 seconds, man, because it's only about 30 seconds, and then they go into like being the two-headed monster that they are, and they they go right back into fighting and yelling and complaining, but for like 30 seconds. It's like I feel so loved <laughs> in that moment. Um, there are moments with my wife. What about you? You know, what? When do you feel loved? Uh, to drill down a little deeper on that, when, when do you feel? What's it like for you? When was the last time you noticed or felt being fully seen and 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 fully loved? That's like a deeper thing, right? Those are. When those moments, I think, happen for you as a human, they, they stand out. They, you'll always remember them. I, I can think of, this might seem trivial to you, but it, it's, it was powerful for me. I remember when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, I, I had this mild surgery done. This wasn't a huge deal, um, but it was like a, I had this biopsy done, and they stuck this, any of you who've had a biopsy know, they stuck this needle. I mean, this thing was like this long, straight, like into my side. Um, it was not pleasant. And um, I remember, I can still remember this. I was probably 16, 17 years old. I had just finished that procedure. I remember laying on my side, I think, to let it drain or something, in, um, in, in the hospital bed. And um, I, I was just sitting in there, laying in there with just me and a nurse. A nurse was sitting across from me, and I was in so much pain. Like, it hurt so bad. And, you know, I was a teenager, right? I was a teenage boy. So I was, like, at the peak of my, like, guarded masculinity, um, which I'm, I'm cool now. I don't have any of those issues now. Um, and so I had just, like, I was somewhat drugged up. And so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really able to put thoughts together and, and talk, but I was in pain. And I remember tears streaming down my face because I was in so much pain. And this nurse got... Nurses, I, I love you, wherever you nurses are in this room. 
But I remember this woman. I still can remember this woman. I don't even remember my parents visiting me. <laughs> and I'm sure they did. <laughs> they were probably. But anyway, but I remember this nurse. I remember her wiping my tears, like, off my face. And she didn't mock me. Um, you know, it's not like she went into some speech about, like, oh, honey, it's okay that you're crying. No, she just, like, guarded my sense of, like, my vulnerability and just kind of, casual, you know. And that stands out in my mind. It's so powerful to this day. I can remember that. I remember... Um, because like, and I use that as an example to think of times, you know, like I, I felt in some way, and I know it's like superficial maybe in some ways, but at the time it just felt like I was being seen, like warts and all kind of thing, you know, at least for a teenager, and, and yet loved on. I remember six, seven years ago, I was in Germany, and I just had got into Berlin, and I went from the airport straight to my first hotel in Berlin, kind of taking in a little bit of the culture shock. It was really hot, really hot. And Germans, like, they just don't, they don't like air conditioning. Uh, like, so if it's hot outside, it is hot inside. And this hotel I went in, I'm like, what? Where? This is Germany, not tight. Like, why is it hot in here? Why do you people not have air conditioning? And this hotel was shaped like a U. And so they had the windows open. And so I went to the window just to, like, get some air. And mind you, I've been in Germany like an hour and a half. And I go to the window, and everyone is sitting in their windows naked. Naked. Just smoking. Just naked. Just perched up on the windowsill. Just smoke. It was like, what? Where am I? Because um, they're just cooling off, right? Like, fully seen, not fully loved, not fully loved by me. I did not, you know, I just pulled the curtains. Um, when are you fully seen, fully loved? It's a profound thing to have happen to you. Today we do, we launched this series on love. I want us to spend, it's a crazy idea, but I think we can spend six weeks on love. I think we can do it as a church. Um, six weeks of reflecting on the depth of Jesus' love for us. It's like my hope and my prayer for you as a pastor, you know, because we're, we're going, we're going we're gonna to get to Easter, right? And you guys are going to come in, and a lot of you are going to be dressed nice and cute, and some of you are not going to change your dress at all, and that's great. I love that. Um, but by the time we get there, like, it, you know, it's spring, and I would like for there to be like a, a refreshment and a renewal in our own hearts and our own lives on love, like as a church, that we're like walking around and in our community and things like this, and we're talking about like when somebody's like, what's on your mind lately? And the answer that might roll out of your mouth is something like, I, I'm just experiencing love in a new way, like that I'm loved in a new way. That's, that would be amazing for me. And so, yes, this year, this time of year marks what traditionally in the church is known as Lent. Um, and it's a time of preparation for that, like a time that we, we're like kind of heading into the, 
to Good Friday, you know, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and, and reflecting on that. And, and, and so it's traditionally a time for, you know, as many of you know, and if you don't know, that's okay, but it's traditionally a time where a lot of people lean into some kind of a fast or something, you know, they, they think about denying themselves to kind of gain some more intentional attention upon Jesus and the work that he's done for us. Um, all in the, in the, the idea, of course, in Lent is just to lean into repentance, to examine our inner lives, to look at what's going on with you. Where have you been? What's going on with you? What might need repenting of? And that's not, repentance is a good thing. Like, it, it's change. It's what you want. We all actually should want to have a life marked by continual repentance. That's, that's wonderful. But easier said than done. And so... Um, that's what I'm hoping for as a church, as you go through your Lent guide, or you pray, or you fast over the next six weeks, those sorts of things. Now, here's the thing. As a preacher, I've come to notice something interesting about people in church, church folk, and I grew up in church. Here's what's interesting to me personally, and these are just my humble opinions, right? So um, I notice how some people love it when preachers angrily yell at them about sin and judgment. You know, like I can come in here, and, and like I can just be this, I could like just rage, you know, sweaty and toweling my face and just like, like trying to wake you up out of your whatever, idolatry or the fact that you're idle or whatever, and then go out into the lobby and people will be like, Pastor, that was awesome. You yelled at me like my dad yelled at me, you know? Um, I've always found that so interesting. Like, what is it that, that that kind of motivation connects with some people? Now, some of you, it doesn't. Don't get me, I know right? Some of you, it doesn't. I think, I think, my theory would be like, I think some of us connect with that because that's what your conscience does to you all the time, and it's what's familiar, right? Like, your conscience is so harsh on you. It's always reminding of you of your guilt and your shame, and so like, when a preacher does it, you're like, yes, I'm right at home and feeling horrible. I'm all for yelling, by the way, like, some of you are like, I don't know, he yells sometimes. And I am for yelling, but I very purposely, intentionally, and strategically try to only yell when it is about grace and how loved you are. I think some of you really need to be yelled at in terms of how much you are loved. Now, I think I'm better than all the other preachers in this regard because I... <laughs> I think, personally, I just don't think yelling or guilt-tripping people into repentance is actually that effective. They just don't. And I think the Bible backs this, right? Paul will say in Romans 2, right, he says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. Not, not the guilt trips of the Lord. The kindness of the Lord. You could insert love there instead. It's seeing, knowing, experiencing the love of God, the, lo the way in which he loves you, the way in which he fully sees you and fully loves you, that truly motivates right action. I mean, you can get action out of guilt tripping, but the right kind of joyful action and change comes from being loved. Why is this? Why is this? Well, I, I, the Bible would say it's because love is the core of who you are. Like, it's, 
It's like the way your engine is put together. It's at the core of our desires as people. Hence why when there is a love vacuum in you, things get a little wonky. Uh, we, it's where I think when, when there's a vacuum of love, it's really that's where the core of where your guilt, your fear, and your shame is being generated from. And the Bible says, you know, we are made in the image of God, and God is love. And therefore, we were, as people, we were literally meant, like designed, to be loved on by God. And the Bible would say, like, you're not even really going to operate properly as a human being until you've experienced it. And, and, and you, you are meant and designed to give that kind of love. Uh, it's First John 4. Seven and eight, right here. Beloved, he's talking to the church. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There it is. You see, here's the thing, right? The story of the Bible, the story of this. I know it's got a lot of crazy, crazy little vignettes and other little stories, but the whole thing, when it comes together, the story of the Bible has this crazy, profound idea that for people to actually become truly loving, which is the call of the Scriptures upon your life and my life, for people to actually become truly loving. Now, love, because our, our culture's got a lot of weird, weird ideas of love. Um, but the way the Bible lays out true love, like love that's not based in reciprocity, love that's not based in fear, um, love that's not like just lust, like you're, you're, just, you're really kind to someone, but it's because you're feeding off of them, right? Like love that's truly sacrificial and benevolent to all people, even enemies, because Jesus goes that far. So the Bible is saying for that to happen, you must encounter being loved like that. That has to come first. You probably noticed it, but it was in the text. I mean, just that the front bit of John 13, it, the flow of the text lays the sequence and this idea out pretty clearly, actually. It's, it's after Jesus loves on them that he sits down and commands love, right? The commandment to love comes after. It's always this way in the Bible. Mercy commanded comes, it's always coming after mercy given, mercy shown. Right? It, 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 always. It's always grace first before the commandments come. I dare you to find me a place that it's not like that. I mean, even the Ten Commandments, because you could go there and you could be like, who's about the Ten Commandments? It's in the Ten Commandments. It's the first line. I'm yours. I'm your God. I, I, I love you. I'm yours and you're mine. Grace first. I've established that idea first, up front. Now, here are the ways that you live in light of that, Right? It's always in that order. Now, here it is again, John 13, 12 through 17. Do you understand what I've done to you? Do you get it? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So the ought comes after, doesn't it? For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
So it's like this. It's like Jesus knows how we're wired as people. Shocker, right? And that what we do, what you do, and what you become, right, as a person, flows from what you've experienced. Now, um, by the way, in case for you, depending on your life story, or where you're at right now, in case all this love talk that I'm going to be doing uh, throughout the series, in case all this love talk just sounds sentimental to you, or, or, or just merely religious cliche, um, well, I, would, I can argue briefly here, and I can spend a lot more time outside of this service, but I can argue that the overwhelming scientific community backs this idea that love is necessary. It is a necessary fuel for the human engine. Necessary. Uh, Dr. Arthur Aaron of Stony Brook University argues that on an MRI machine, the brain of a person experiencing the first bursts of love looks in some ways like the brain of a person in the midst of a cocaine rush. Dr. Aaron argues that love is not an emotion like happiness or sadness. Love is a motivational state which leads to various emotions ranging from euphoria to misery. A person in love, he says, has the keenest possible ambition to achieve a goal. Psychologists like Eric Fromm claim that the deepest need of man is the need to overcome his separateness, to leave the prison of his aloneness. Hence why the pandemic has been so disruptive to you. This need is so strong, from writes, if, that it goes unmet, right? It will result in an insanity. Not being connected, in other words, Fromm would say, not being connected and experiencing love can literally cause mental illness. You start to deteriorate. Harvard Medical School's famous grant study started in 38, 39, and 40. It was a study that followed the lives of hundreds of men for 75 years. Isn't that crazy? 75 years they studied them. The study found that the most significant factor in life satisfaction is loving relationships throughout one's life. The study's director summarized the findings this way, quote, happiness is love, full stop. Doesn't matter how much you make, doesn't matter what your career is, doesn't matter what your reputation is, if you are not experiencing love, you will not be happy. Uh, the director of that study currently, Robert Waldinger, who now heads it, right? Uh, again, this began in 1938, though, has said, quote, people who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and they will live shorter lives. Philosopher, I'm not done. You're like, goodness gracious. I'm going to prove my point. Philosopher Joseph Piper wrote in his book, Faith, Hope, and Love, quote, what matters to us beyond mere existence is the explicit confirmation, it is good that you exist, how wonderful that you are. In other words, what we need over and above sheer existence is to be loved by another person. And according to the Bible, uh, that it's 
it's not just that we need love. It's that, like, when we're not experiencing it the right way, like, it's disordered love that gets us in all sorts of trouble. So Henry Nouwen wrote this, quote, human relationships easily become possessive. Our hearts so much desire to be loved that we are inclined to cling to the person who offers us love, affection, friendship, care, or support. Once we've seen or felt a hint of love, we want more of it. That explains why lovers so often bicker with each other. (laughs) It is very hard for love not to become possessive because our hearts look for perfect love and no human being is capable of that. Only God can offer perfect love. There you go. I just solved all of your marital problems. You just need to look at each other this morning and say, you're not God. Right? John 13 through 17, which is what we're going to explore over the next six weeks, is an invitation into the love that the human condition desperately needs, that you need, that I need. It's an invitation to reorder your loves properly. That's what the next six weeks, I hope, can do for us. These four chapters are a window into love at its best. It's like, mm, it's just wonderful. You can just read it. I would encourage you to read it daily, weekly, over the next six weeks. It takes, I timed it. You can get through the whole thing, 13 through 17. You can get through it in about 35 minutes. And that's at a slow reading pace. That's me. I'm a slow reader. Hang on every word. It's, it's it, this, this section of John's gospel, it's into the heart of Jesus, his love for us. It's not because foot washing is somehow like it trumps the crucifixion. No, 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 no. It's, the crucifixion comes after it, which means for John and, and for Jesus, I think, you, you, it's that the foot washing helps you understand the crucifixion. It's, it, it helps the, the crucifixion really get inside you so that you know what's going on and what Jesus is up to. So Jesus is literally a day away in context in the story. He's literally a day away from his death on a cross. He knows this is looming. The pressure he feels, the sadness he probably feels, right? He's going to be sweating blood soon in the garden. So this is what's looming, and what's he do? What's he do in these last hours? He, t- he takes the evening hours at supper to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead by serving them and teaching them and, and sharing his deepest feelings for them. This is what he chooses to do in his last hours. I mean, the, this, what they, a lot of us call, this is what they call the final discourse of Jesus. The, the final discourse of Jesus clearly meant, this meant the world to John, the author of our text. I mean, consider this just plainly, right? He spends 12 chapters, because we're starting at 13. So he spends 1 through 12 on three years of Jesus' ministry. 12 chapters to cover three years. He spends four chapters covering three hours of conversation. That's, how the, that's what this meant for John. I, I, I can imagine how much John, John has memorized so many of these words because for him, it, it just meant everything to him. John 13 through 17 is, is zoomed in, if you will, on the love of Jesus for his disciples, which includes you. One scholar wrote this in chapters 13 through 17 of John. The word love, agape, a word that was used only six times in the previous 12 chapters, is now like an avalanche, suddenly poured out 31 times in just five chapters. 
It's, it's done so to show, Jesus is showing his special feeling for his church for the sake of the world. The first verse that you read, of its narration of John, gives you the theme of the rest of the gospel account, according to him. It's Jesus' life story, I would argue. Chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There you go. Just tattoo that on your heart. He, he, he owned them. These are mine. They belong to me. And I keep them forever, and I will love them forever. Now, I, I, I think love to the end, I, I think there are two meanings there. Jesus literally loved them until his dying breath, and Jesus loved them to the end relationally, meaning completely, fully, all parts of them, fully known and yet fully loved. You'll repeatedly, you know, you heard... There's a, Repeatedly, John brings up the fact that it's not like he doesn't know what Judas Iscariot's up to, and yet he's washing his feet too, friends. He knows them fully. Luke tells us that in the same dinner hour, they're having a dispute rose up amongst them about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He knows everything about them. And how inept they are, how slow on the uptake of information and ideas and principles and all of it that they are. And yet he loves them. To to display this love and to teach them the depths of God's love, somewhere in mid-supper, he gets up and shocks them. And and, and you got to picture it, right? These disciples are reclining on these thin mats around a, a low table, as was the custom back then for this kind of a meal. Each is leaning on one of their arms. And Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist, goes over and fills a basin of water, gets down on the floor and begins scrubbing, cleaning off the dust, the dirt, and who knows what else. People would literally take their waste and their excrement from buckets and throw them out the windows. And they didn't have Nikes back then, shocker, right? So they wore sandals everywhere. So feet were gross. Your feet are gross. Imagine what their feet were like. Sorry, your feet aren't gross. You take good care of your feet. But this is what's happening. Everything about this is intentional and shocking. Foot washing was customary back then. This isn't like they washed feet regularly. I mean, they did. Foot washing was customary, but it was at the beginning of the night as you entered into the room for a meal. But it was so low, so degrading of a task that it was reserved for slaves and it was reserved for the servants of the home only. And yet Jesus takes up this task. And Jesus interrupts the supper in the middle of it, takes the form of a slave, and humbly serves his friends and followers. And John makes sure that you sense the contrast and the humility of Jesus, because this is what he says in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. So like John's showing you this, like Jesus is fully grasped, like he knows who he is. He, he, he knows the authority that he has. He can command legions of angels. He, he, he can does what he wants. He's in full control. And he knows that he's leaving soon to go back and bask in his glory. And instead of a lecture on how immature they still unfortunately are as disciples, he cleans and he comforts them. But alas, it would not be, and if you've ever read through the gospel stories, you know this, it wouldn't be a great moment with Jesus without an outburst from proud to be humble Peter. Right? Because that's what he is. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to them, Lord, you wash my feet? Literally in the Greek, it's you, me? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. Afterwards, you'll understand. Just, right? Let me do what I want, Peter. Shh. Peter says to him, you, you, you're not going to wash. You'll never wash my I love how Peter commands Jesus in his humility. You're not going to wash my Never. And Jesus answered him, if, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, <laughs> I love this. Not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, no, and this is Jesus' way of saying, no, Peter, you don't get it. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's talking about custom, just everyday custom, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, Peter's thinking this, right? And you get it. I'm sure you get it. But Peter's sitting around the room. He's sitting there leaning on his arm and sees Jesus doing this. And who knows where he's at in the order, right? And, but Peter, by the time he gets to Peter, he's thinking, well, maybe these other morons are going to let Jesus do this. Not me, right? I'm too principled. There's no way. This, this is the one who has the words of eternal life. He's not going to wash my feet. The irony of some humilities in us is that, in fact, they're just a facade for the deepest of arrogance. Jesus is patient with Peter, right? You don't understand it? You will. He's patient with him. But it, it has to be confronted. It's too important. It's too instructive. And Jesus' response is very direct. Kind, but direct. If you can't let me love you in this way, and on a deeper level, I think, what Jesus is getting at, if you can't let me forgive you, and you can't let me serve you, we can't be friends. You can't have my presence. You can't have my fellowship. You can't even have me as Lord. In other words, Jesus is saying, this, I think this is what he's getting at to Peter. He's saying, Peter, if you can't believe in my words and in my work more than your guilty conscience, you can't have my gospel. Because you have a brutal conscience, and it competes with the gospel every day. 
Unfortunately, poor Peter, he's just not there yet in his understanding. And so he leans into this, this washing with an overreaction, right? Well, in that case, give me a whole body job, Jesus. And you don't get it. The problem is, of course, he doesn't realize that this foot washing itself isn't the main point. It's simply meant to symbolize how Jesus feels and what, he has, and, and what Jesus has come to do and what he wants for us. Like he's, he's helping, remember, he's, he's pointing them to the crucifixion that they don't yet know is coming, even though he's told them, but they, they still don't get it. And, and, and this will all come back to them after the fact. The cross, Jesus has come to wash us clean all the way through, right? All the way to the bottom, all the way to the, through your soul. He's come to make us right with God. The cross, the resurrection will do that once and for all. They just don't know it yet. They need time. They need the clarifying help of the resurrected Jesus, and they need the clarifying help of the Holy Spirit living in them, which will come. But in the same way uh, that they daily washed their feet even after they had bathed, he wants them to daily look at their lives. He wants them to daily consider what lies are creeping into their hearts. Where do you need a refresher on his love and his forgiveness? Because it's difficult for people. It's just difficult for us to cling to the belief that they are so loved, that they are loved this thoroughly, completely. We forget what Jesus has done. We forget that we're truly clean. We we, we forget that this love that he has for us is endless and steadfast in all opposition. Even when it seems like his love is failing, I think that's why John includes so many comments about Judas It's like even when it seems like Jesus' love is somehow failing and what he's going to accomplish is failing, it's not. You see, it's easy to take this story and focus only on the command of Jesus. And by the way, I have kind of preached it that way as I went back and looked at the catalog. I'm like, eh, but that's what we do. I always look at our old sermons and go, that wasn't right. I got it right this time, but that wasn't right back then. But it's easy, I think, to look at the story like this and focus only on the command of Jesus to go and do and skip the whole part of what he has done. We emphasize the rule and the commandment over the experience. So here's the question. The question I'm asking, I want you to be asking in this series is this. It's straightforward. Are you letting yourself be loved by Jesus? Now, let's sit with it because it seems straightforward and simple. Simple, but not easy. Here's what we're learning in the final hours of Jesus' life. You can't have Jesus as Lord unless you first have him as a servant. That's uncomfortable. But that's his design, not mine. If you don't see and experience the whole scandalous, and it's, it is scandalous, the whole scandalous act of this, then the Lord you say you worship, the Lord Jesus that you say you worship, that you worship, is probably a manufactured Lord. You, and you've manufactured him in your mind and in your imagination based on worldly hierarchy, systems of power, dynamics, like your father or whatever, or some leader that you had, some authority figure that you had. 
and it's not based on Jesus. It's not the real Jesus that comes out to us through the text. It's hard for us to grab this idea that, because we're just not used to this idea that an important person, the most important person in the world would humiliate himself for the most unimportant person. Our struggle, I think, to grasp this is probably what's going on inside us when we refuse to wrestle with forgiveness of others, when we refuse to show mercy, when we refuse to serve others without a chip on our shoulder. This is what's going on. It's not your will. It's not your grit. It's not your, your, your like work ethic problem. No, it's this. You don't see the scandalous act of the most important person in the world humiliating themselves for you. Because if you feel that, things change immensely. All of a sudden, it gets real hard to be the most like arrogant person in the room, to be the know-it-all. It's really difficult. The story shows us that the true Lord of the universe stoops down into humiliation as his form of lordship. That's what he does. It's strange and scandalous, it, but truth, the truth is it's not grasped quickly. I grant that. It takes time, as Jesus predicted. So, so here's the truth I, I, I want to get into our hearts. I pray that we pray over this week, over the next six weeks. Jesus loves you more than you know. Like, I trust that you think or believe or you've heard that Jesus loves you. Yes. But what I would submit is that, that Jesus loves you more than you know. And here's the thing. Here's the kicker. I think you're more resistant to it than you, think, than you know you are. You're actually more guarded. You're more guarded about the love Jesus has for you than you think you are. It's like outside of your sense of awareness in some ways. It's going to take time for you. It's going to take time for me. You don't see how much you're like Peter, is what I'm trying to say. So what would it look like to pray this consistently? God, show me where I'm resistant or guarded in being loved. Not just in showing others love, because I want that for us. Like I want us to be a loving church. But I'm talking about, God, show me where I'm resistant, guarded in being loved. Being loved. Like some of you are difficult to love on. And it's not because you're like not easily liked. Because underneath there is a proud, a pride issue. You're a struggle. I mean, ask some friends or a spouse that you know, hopefully you trust enough. Am I difficult? To be truly, and then, and then don't stop there. Ask yourself why. Why? What is going on? What does it trigger? What does it conjure up in you? Does it bring about feelings of humiliation? Shame? Peter's written into the story. Because in the same way Peter struggles with the humiliation of being served when he doesn't deserve it, so do you. So do you. So do I. 
We have the same kind of guardedness around our shame. I can show you. I, I can give you a little tactic to know when it's happening. Or you can see it in somebody else. That'll be easier for you. Right? Here's how. When, it, when, you get, when somebody gets close to your shame, you know what happens with most people? They make a joke. They get vague. They refuse to be specific. You know what they're doing? You know what the subconscious is doing? It's throwing out like fireworks over here. Don't look at that. Look at this. That's how you know. That's how you know. And that's how you know you're doing it. Why did I make just light of that? Why did I, why did I make a joke when that person asked me that question? Like, why, was I, what was I afraid, why was I afraid to go there? Why was I afraid to be specific? We have the same kind of guardedness around our shame. We're struggling to let go of it in some way. It's why we only share a part of ourselves, right? You might have one person in your life that you're really, but it's why, it's why we love to live our lives online. It's calculated. It's manicured. It's why we turn the lights off when we're intimate. Like, let's be honest. We show only parts of ourselves because the, it's too terrifying to be fully seen. But when you are fully seen and fully loved, something just connects on a level that you wouldn't believe. It's a superpower. It's why we're struggling with our shame. It's why we're so anxious when people see the ugly parts of ourselves that weren't planned and they weren't calculated. So maybe this would help as we wrap up and we come into communion. This would help kickstart it for you if, 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 if you need help with this. And if you don't, that's okay. If none of this is connecting with you, that's okay. Uh, but if not today, maybe sometime this week, explore the thing about yourself and I know that this can be heavy for some of us, um, but it matters. Your life matters so much to God and to me. It's worth you doing. Explore today or this week the thing about yourself that really makes you feel dirty. Like just, and it might take time. Whatever your first answer is, it's probably not the right one. So write down the first one and then say, okay, so-and-so, okay, Matt, tell me more. What else? And just keep going. The second, third one, or fourth answer you give might be closer to the right one. But what's the thing about yourself that makes you feel vulnerable? Like if people knew, if people saw this about you, they wouldn't like you. You have one of those things. You have multiples of those things. And imagine Jesus stooping down, like the servant that he is, and saying, I know all about this, and I want to wash it. I want to clean it. Imagine him saying to you, you do not have to carry that anymore. You don't have to. And this does not define you anymore. 
And we have these things. I have these things. I have these things. I have these stories that I tell myself, right? That I know just are still like living out in me and I have to constantly come back to Jesus and go, what, what are you redefining about me? Remember this, remember this. Guilt is about what you have done. Shame is about who you are. It's about who you are. Like guilt is like I did this last week, last year, 10 years ago, and I, I feel bad about it. Shame is like I'm a horrible person. And remind yourself of this, that Jesus, Jesus washes what he loves, and he keeps forever what he washes. He keeps it forever. On that same night, the same night that we'll be exploring, he was with them. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this represents my body broken for you. And he took the cup of wine for giving thanks. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Right? right? The new covenant, the new promise. I, I, can, I see you to the bottom and yet I still love you. You are so loved, so loved by Jesus, and you are more resistant to it than you know. Take time exploring. When you are ready, if any of this is connected with you, if any of this, you know, I hope that you can spend some time in prayer. Come Wednesday morning, spend time in prayer on it. Talk to your friends. Talk to your community groups about this. But come up here in a moment when you're ready. If Jesus is Lord to you, you're invited to come take part in communion. We do that by taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice. Let us pray. Father, we, we give you thanks. As a church, I lift up this idea to you, Father, that, that we as a community might experience your love in a new and fresh way, that it really penetrates our hearts in a new and profound way. Whatever is hard about our, our hearts, may you soften it. Whatever is resistant or guarded, may you just break through it. I need it, my, my friends, my family, these brothers, these sisters. Like We need this. We need you to do it. We know that it's your desire. And so, Father, that is my ask. I lift that up to you this morning. And we give thanks in our shock and our amazement that you stoop this low to serve and to love us in spite of ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.